Well, good morning, New City. Happy Super Bowl Sunday, Jersey Sunday. Welcome. It feels right being in my high school football jersey. It just does. I hope it looks right because it feels right. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I can't hear all you. Too many of you are jeering me. I can't hear what you're, what you're saying. <laughs> Uh, well, welcome. Uh, so we have a couple house cleaning things before we, we wrap up our, our Enemies and Allies series. The first one is, um, the first week we were in Rock Creek, um, I, I was preaching from a music stand, like I have the whole life of the church plant, and the stand flopped over and my iPad and Bible fell and, and it was a mess, and I thought it would, went pretty unnoticed because I was really cool about the transition, but apparently everybody noticed. So what happened after that was, um, Nathan bought me a stand, a pulpit, um, my mom bought me a pulpit, and uh, and my mom's won out because hers was foldable and could fit in the truck, but it wasn't tall enough. So Aaron Crabb made the adjustment on the pulpit. And then little did I know, Jeremy Ingram was at work also building me a pulpit. Well, look at this thing. It, on, the, on the, what I can see is the, isn't that cool? It's a new city logo. And on the top is Colossians 1, 28, 29. That's my pastor verse, which says, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor and struggle with his energy, uh, which works so mightily within me. So thank you. Thank you to all of you who helped in the pulpit crisis. What's, what's going to happen is we sent Nathan's back. This is too nice. It'll get banged up in the trailer. So this is now furniture in my office. So when you come to my house, I will present and preach from the, uh, a pulpit. I have one at home now. And then we'll use, we'll use mom's more regular on a regular basis. So that was our first house cleaning item. The second is, if I could get the Peru uh, missions trip team to come up. So this is one of the neat things I get to do as a pastor. I'm not going on this trip, but we, we get to pray for them as they're on their way out. So uh, as they're coming up, I just want to show you, and you guys can just kind of line up down here if you like. Um, pastor Chuck has already been in Peru for several weeks now. He's been giving us updates on the staff and, and uh, texting us, and it's been going really well. This picture right here um, is a family that he got to share the gospel with. Anita is the lady's name on the far right. She was the only Christian in her family. And um, Chuck and some of our Peru... Uh, Peru missionaries were sharing the gospel with them, and they had two people get saved while, while he was down there. So I don't know which two in the picture, but so Chuck is already on the ground floor at work. But these three are going to be going uh, this Wednesday. They're going to be going out uh, and supporting our two uh, uh, sets of missionaries, the Frericks and the Albrights. Um, so I'm going to pray for them. Um, we hopefully we'll, we'll get an update from you guys when you come back. They're going to be doing all kinds of things. Uh, we have you, you speak Spanish, correct? I hope so. That's what you told us, anyways. So we have we have two out of the four are Spanish speakers, and Jeff supposedly was polishing up, so, um, so but they're going to do all kinds of things, minister to our mi missionaries um, and their families, but also there's, there's a lot of outreach stuff happening in Peru with um, sports ministries and that sort of thing. One other uh, just picture I wanted to show you, our kids uh, ministry, Lisa helped do this, put this together, made little uh, cards for all of our missionary kids, so um, Roman and um, Sadie and all the um, Albright kids too are going to get those from our church. Um, but before, before uh, we begin the series. Let me pray for you guys, um, if you guys would pray with me. God, uh, thank you so much for the work that is going on in Peru. We thank you so much for the Albrights and the Frericks and the things that they're doing. Would you just continue to bless their ministry? But Lord, in the next several weeks, we're asking specifically, would you bless um, the four New City people who are down there? Might they be um, a, a breath of fresh air for the missionaries and, and, and just a relief to them? But I also pray for good opportunities to witness and to proclaim your goodness um, in a land very far away, but in, in, in a city um, that desperately needs you. So bless these 
individuals, be with their families as, as they're going to be behind too, and, and they pay a cost as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, thanks guys. We'll see you when you get back. Okay, on to the, uh, to the actual sermon. So, good morning once again. Uh, okay, so we are, we are in a series called Enemies and Allies. We, we've been looking at the, the three enemies of, of, of the soul, um, Satan, the flesh, and the world. And then at the end of every sermon, we've talked about allies. What has God given us to counteract these enemies, these, these things that are working against us and, and working to, to make us sin? Um, but what I realized is as I've been preaching through this, I haven't spent a lot of time on the allies. So I wanted to end this series today talking, uh, preaching on the word, the spirit, and the church. So I can't be as thorough as I'd like to be, but I want to encourage you and almost just give you a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to be. What, what, th- there's a lot of things working against you. You're being lied to, you're being deceived, but what are, what are the good things that God has given us to counteract that? So we've looked at this several times. The enemy ta- uh, tactic is this. Uh, the deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. So that comes from John Mark Comer. So I took some liberty and wrote the opposite. This comes from Adam Lindsay Beecher. This is what Christ's tactic is. This is how he would have us live, how he would counteract the lies that we get. Truth believed and lived out in Christ's body of holy disciples. That's his model, that we would know true things and revere truth. We wouldn't that we would not just believe that, but that we would live out the truth of the gospel and that we would all do that together as, as the body of Christ together. So we're going we're gonna to close out our series talking about the allies, the three allies, and we're going to do it reading uh, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll start at verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the few passages that sort of has all three of them together and teaches on all three. But here's, here's how we're going to look at it today. Number one, we're going to meet the allies, or I'm going to reintroduce you to the allies Number two, I want to show you how the allies work. And then number three, I want to talk to you about why we fight this battle. Let's pray that God would bless our, our, our time and uh, begin. Lord, thank you so much again for the, the um, uh, missions work and, and the team. Uh, God, I pray now that you would just uh, direct our hearts towards your word. Um, it's so rich and so good and also so very true. So God, I pray that the truths of your word would move in us in such a way that we would change and that we would look more and more like your son. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Ephesians 1, and I'll read uh, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, 
and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So, as I said, this is a passage, one of, the, one of not many, but one of the few that, that would have all three of these elements together intertwined in a teaching. And it's, it's, an, it's an awesome passage. Uh, it's sort of, uh, the beginning of Ephesians is famous, if you know Greek, because there's sort of two really long run-on sentences. There, I think the first one is the longest sentence in all the Bible, and the second one is not far behind it. So we, we, we covered most of the second sentence, but it's this long, epic teaching that Paul is giving to the Ephesian church about what we have in Christ. And it, uh, for the way we've cut the text, it divides sort of nicely. The first couple verses just give us the gospel. They just share the good news of Christ. And then the second part is this prayer that he has for the church. So I want to reintroduce you or I want you to meet um, the allies through this text because this is all the good news Paul is giving this church as he teaches them. So the word is the first ally that we've talked about. Something God's given us to help us in our spiritual battle. And you can see in the beginning it says this. In him you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that right there at the very beginning of our passage is the gospel. What does it take to be right with God? How can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I know Jesus? Paul says, you hear the word, you believe it, and then you are sealed. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. You don't, you don't have to have years or decades of good performance. It's simply hearing the word and believing it in your heart, confessing Jesus and the good things that we find in the word. So that's one of the things that the word does. The word tells you how you can be made right with God. That's not a mystery. It's not a puzzle to us. The word tells us how we can be saved, and it's by believing. But as Paul goes on, listen, listen to what, what he's, he's praying for. He wants them to have wisdom and revelation and knowledge. He wants them to be enlightened and he wants them to know. What does he want them to know? We won't go through all of these like point by point, but I'm just going to read them to you. He wants them to know him, which is God. He wants them to know the hope to which they have been called. He wants them to know the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Do you hear Paul gushing a little bit? It's a run-on sentence, and he's using top-shelf words, his immeasurable greatness, his, his unbelievable goodness, and the riches of your glory, of the glorious inheritance and the hope that we have. He wants you, now listen, look at the text. He's not saying, I'm praying that you would have power, and I'm praying that you would have hope. He's not doing that. Look at it. I'm praying that you would know about the hope and the power you already have if you've believed. That's the knowing. That's what the word gives us. The word doesn't give us power and it doesn't give us hope. It, it shows for us the power and the hope that we already have. And here's just a little, a little nugget, something I, I didn't catch when I read it, but as I was reading through the commentaries, it says, uh, one of the things it says is the riches of his glorious inheritance. And I think on the first time reading through that, I thought, oh yeah, the glorious inheritance. That's, we get to go to heaven when we die and God's gonna give us a lot of good things. Read it again. Riches of his glorious inheritance. That's, if, if you look at the grammar, 
It's God's inheritance. Earlier in the passage, it talks about our inheritance, which is all the good things, heaven and salvation and eternal life. And here he's talking about God's inheritance. Do you know what God's inheritance is? Us, Jersey Sunday, you, <laughs> me. This, is that not one of the most beautiful little side notes in all the Bible that God considers us his inheritance? That he loves us so much that he died for us and he considers that a win for him? That he got people uh, who were lost but now follow him? He calls that his inheritance. So that's the word of God. The word of God not only tells you how you can be made right with God, it tells you all the things you have. And if you've fallen asleep on the hope that you have, on the power that you have in Christ, on the inheritance that you have and that he has, which basically is another way of saying how much he loves you, then you need the word of God. Paul is trying to bring this out in his letter. So that's the first ally we've talked about uh, to some extent. The second is the spirit. And the spirit shows up in that first gospel section. In him, when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of salvation, you believed. And then what happened? What happened after you believed? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, you might know the history of this, but the seal was something like that a king would put uh, on a letter or important government document. If you put uh, hot wax on it and then he put his own stamp on it, that was his seal. And what that served to do is it, it, it made it official. It says, this is mine. This is from the king. It matters. It, it carries my authority. And here Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit does that with us. When we believe, he seals us. Now we are ambassadors of the king. We're his. We have his same uh, authority. We've come from him. But the Spirit does something else. So Paul is asking us, you just, need to, you just need to know. If you only knew the hope and the power. Well, how do we know this stuff? What if I don't feel all that hopeful and I don't often reflect on the inheritance or the power? Who helps me? It's the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So the spirit not only reveals, but it, uh, it not only uh, seals, but it reveals. The spirit shows us things. So if you're, if you're one of those, this is probably most all of us, if you've ever come to the Bible and said, I'm not really getting much out of this. I'm not sure what I'm, not sure what I'm reading. Don't be alarmed by that. It's okay. It's a, it's a difficult book in places, right? But one of the things that has to happen is it's not just the words of God. You can read a paragraph or a whole book of the Bible and come away with it untouched at all. You need the Spirit to open your eyes to show you the hope you have, to show you that you are his inheritance and that you are loved. So not only does he give us true words that we can always count on, he gives us a spirit that, that lives inside us and seals us so that we can understand this hope. We can live it out. And oh, by the way, he gives us one more thing, which is the church. So the church is only whispered about in the first part of this passage. He keeps saying uh, this word saints, all the saints, saints, us who believe, right? And there's, there, there are church traditions that I would say use this word incorrectly. Some churches think a saint is somebody, only somebody who's lived a super holy life and uh, we venerate them after they die or something. Uh, but that's not what the, what the word means at all. The, the, the word, the Greek word there is hagios, uh, which means a most holy thing. And when the Bible talks about the saints, it's talking about us who believe, People who follow Jesus, who have who've heard the word and believed, it says those people are most holy. Holy people. But then at the end, he uses a different word, ecclesia, which we translate into church. 
And that word means the called out ones. So we've talked about the world and how it's messy and gross and it's always trying to distract us and make us greedy, make us selfish. Well, God has called out a certain group of people to be different. It's the church. It's the ecclesia. He's called them out. And in the end, he talks about the church, which is full of the saints. He put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And again, if you read by it fast, you might not catch this, but did you hear how he just described our relationship with Jesus? We're, we're not, we're not, we, we have sayings that, that talk about like, he's my right hand man. I want you to be my eyes and ears. That's a, that's a saying of uh, at least a, a, a close relationship, right? You're, you're, you're a part of my body here in this instance. It, when he's talking about the church, the saints, the called out ones, he says, you are his body. And the only other comparison I have in the Bible is when uh, the biblical authors talk about marriage, two becoming one flesh. When, when, when God creates Eve for Adam, he says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's the most intimate relationship God gave us. But when he's talking about the church, the, another ally God's given you, a thing he's given you to help you in this world, he's saying that's the very body of Jesus. So, if you know of, or if you've been this person at one time, the type of person that says, oh, I'm very spiritual, I'm in tune with the Spirit, I'm all in on Jesus' stuff, I'm just not much of a churchgoer. What they're saying is, I love the head of Christ, but I hate his body, which you can't do, really. It, it's, it's him. It, Jesus is the church, not 100% totally, but he has called us his body. It means how he wants to move and act in this world, he will do it through you. He, he's, the, he's the head. He will do the thinking and the commanding. We're the, we're the hands and feet. We do the doing. So those are the three allies. Now let's look at how they work. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. So um, we've talked about a, a number of sins during this series. But I, and and I've, I've tried to demonstrate just to make us a little wiser. How is the enemy at work? How is he lying to you? How does, it, how does he get you to fall for it? I want to do the same thing with, with what God has done, with Christ's tactic. How does he make us holy? How does he make us better people? How does he make us righteous and more like him? So let's take uh, an example that we talked about last week when we talked about the world. Consumerism. Uh, the desire to just buy and have more and more, and the inability to see um, our greed in that kind of situation. So here's how you might map out how our enemy would work. So the devil starts the lie, if you remember. Um, the devil might tell you a lie that's something like this. A new ex, whatever your thing is. So insert, if you're a kid, maybe it's a toy. If you're um, a, a grown-up, maybe it's a house remodel or a car. I don't know. Just put, 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 picture yourself onto the PowerPoint here for a second. Uh, and a new ex will make me happy. That's a lie that the devil tells. No new anything is going to make you happy unless it's, it's new life in Christ, right? Um, so that's the lie. But you're prone to believe it because your flesh is screaming at you, I actually need this. I need that thing. And it would be right for me to have it. It would almost be wrong to not have it, right? So the devil and you are working in tandem. And then, oh, of course, you live in a world that is just shouting at you, just begging you. Of course you need to buy. Of course, buy it. It's on sale. It's in stock, right? So that's how the enemy works. And we've looked at that a lot in this series. How does God work? So whereas the enemy is sowing seeds for sin, consumerism, greed, God is building virtue in those who he has called out, in his saints. And this is how he might do that. He could do it with any number of verses, but I like the short, concise ones. They're like a bullet. 
uh, uh, Hebrews 13, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Be content with what you have. <laughs> so there you have it. That's the true thing. Oh, I need something. I need something. No, the Bible's called you to contentment with whatever you have. So that's true. But you might not feel that. You can, you can go ahead and read that and still, still really want the toy or the remodel or the car or whatever it is. And none of those things are bad in, in and of themselves, but they can become idols, right? Well, this is the work that the Spirit does. You read that, and then the Spirit does a work within you. That not only you know the truth of it, but that you actually feel satisfied. So when the temptation comes, you think, actually, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in need of that. I'm, I'm, I'm totally content with where I am. I'm content in what I have in Christ. And if I get that great, it starts, the Spirit does the work of diminishing these things in our eyes. And then where we should come into play is uh, hopefully in a church uh, that's following a savior that had no worldly possessions, that will be good towards your consumerism. Now, you're going to church with a bunch of other greedy people. That's the downside. No church is perfect. We're all hypocrites to some degree, right? But in theory, this should be a community where the things of Christ are, are held in the highest regard, where we, where we don't actually ooh and ah if somebody pulls up in a nice car or is wearing nice clothes. Those things shouldn't hold weight in here. The things of Christ should actually sacrifice and, and following his example. So that's how God is working in you to sow, to sow virtue. Let's take another example. Sexual sin, right? This, this one is everywhere and it's, it's obvious we talked about this when we talked about the sins of the flesh. Um, the, the devil might give you a lie. Give in and you'll be rewarded. It's kind of the same lie, just respun. If you get this thing, you'll like it. If you get this thing, you'll be happy. And then your flesh... Starts talking yourself into it. Ah, oh, it's not that bad. I'm all alone. Nobody's here. Nobody's watching. And then, of course, our world is, again, it's just constantly, uh, it's like we're, it's, the, it's the air that we breathe. It's the water we swim in. Uh, the world would tell you, go ahead. It's healthy. Who, anybody that would say otherwise that's judging you, they're judgmental. You should do it, right? So that's the environment we live in. No wonder we're prone to falling for this sin. How might God work against it? Well, the word is not unambiguous. If you're willing to go to it, if you're willing to read it and hear it, it'll tell you. Flee from sexual immorality. Do a study on the word. It means sprint as fast as you can. You're wearing jerseys. Get up and run. That's, that's what that word is. Run away from it. Just get out. It doesn't tell you to, to try to stand in there and fight. It says run away from it because it's dangerous. Um, so you might read that, but then the spirit needs to do a work in you. He needs, he needs to actually reveal that truth to you where you say, you might even acknowledge, I am tempted. I do want to do something wrong here. I feel that. But I also know that there's nothing at the end of that, that that leads to death and that there are better things in Christ, in my church, in my family for me. And then finally, the church should be a community that values modesty and faithfulness and even offers accountability. Let me ask you this. If you struggle with sexual sin, how many people in the world are going to ask you, hey, hey, did you struggle this week? Tell me, tell me about how your week went. Good luck finding that or finding any place where that's even normal. That's normal here. That's normal. When we planted the church, I remember it. Some people thought it was weird, but the people that were in our core group, um, uh, I met with, them, met with all the guys one-on-one, -on -one and I said, hey, do you struggle with pornography? <laughs> and it wasn't a great icebreaker. I probably should have said other things. That was my first sentence. I should have said other things, right? But, that's, but one of the things I was trying to communicate, and one of the things was, yeah, I want, I want to know, just I, I want the answer to the question, but I also wanted to set, set the tempo. 
this is the kind of church that we are, that this question is actually fair game, and we can ask each other that. Do you see how this sin, the more light sheds on it, the, the, the more it dies? Sin loves darkness. It loves to be alone. But if you live in a community, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't thrive. Last one, the critical spirit and the church lady, which the reference dates me, uh, obviously. But um, having a critical spirit is something I see a lot today. Um, just in our culture, I see it, I see it in myself uh, as well. Um, how might, the, how might the, the enemy work in this? Uh, the devil will tell you a lie. Something like, you would never have done that. Whatever you're being critical of, the, the, the devil will elevate you and say, oh my, these terrible sinners, that's not, they're in a different class than you are, right? Um, and the, your flesh, meanwhile, is just screaming at you, tear them down, tear her down, right? Let them have it. Let them, let them know what's, what's going wrong. You can be critical. You can, you can tell them that you know, you know what's right. And then obviously we live in a world that values criticism and self-righteousness. But God wants to sow in us humility. And Ephesians 4 uh, says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient. So maybe, maybe you use that as a filter. Okay, you need to give someone a hard word. You need to critique them. Run it through the Ephesians 4-2 filter. If you can check all those boxes and all those words, you are humble, you're gentle, and you're patient with the person, go ahead, give your critique, right? Just imagine if you just let that one scripture be the filter on your mouth. And here's the spirit. Here's the work that the spirit does. How does the spirit sow humility? How does it make us uh, less critical? It, it takes us back to where we believed, when we were lost. And, and the Christian, the, the foundation of the Christian's heart is, I've been forgiven of so much. You know what you've done wrong. You know what you sent Jesus to the cross with. You know your sin weight the, the, the load that you brought to that equation, you know what that is. And Jesus did away with all of it because he loves you and he died for you. If that's your starting point, you're not going to be critical. The spirit is going to get a hold of your heart. And hopefully you're in a community that seeks forgiveness more than being right. Hopefully we put a premium on forgiveness rather than critiquing and perfection. So these are how the allies work. Um, but one of the things that I noticed as I was studying for this sermon series, it's, it's not, uh, uh, next week John Nemers will preach, he'll talk about the new church plant, and then the following we're going to be in Galatians. Most of the time our church does that. We just plunk down in a piece of scripture and we go through, go through verse by verse. But this is more of a topical sermon. But what was hard was trying to find places where all three of these, these ideas were together in one passage or one verse. It didn't happen often, but it happened some. And I just couldn't resist the World War II picture. God help me, I, I just couldn't resist it. But it was like, it was like these three, they were, you know, the big three of, of World War II, the Allied forces, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill, their, their, um, their people and their sides were communicating constantly. A lot of overflow of communication. But the three of them only got together a handful of times, two or three times. So this, this picture is very historical because it's like, if you think about how important these three guys are, and they're all sitting together um, at once. So uh, what I found was there aren't a lot of places where we find all three the Spirit, the Word, and the church together. But the, the, the part that we do, um, it's a really beautiful passage. So I showed you this the first week. You can find the flesh, the world, um, and Satan in the same passage. Ephesians 2, there's a couple others though. But the story where you find all three of these, uh, of these elements working together is a beautiful picture for us. It's in Acts chapter 4. And um, the church is brand new. 
and everyone is full, filled with the Spirit, and they're getting together every day. They're, they're, they're a part of each other's lives. And Peter and John are just as bold as you can be. They're preaching the gospel everywhere, and they get arrested, and they get in trouble, and when they're, when they're before the authorities, they still proclaim Christ. You aren't, you, nobody is saved outside of Christ. They continue to be bold with the word, and the authorities, eventually, they decide to let them go. It's like, we can't stop this group. We can't stop this new and burgeoning church. And so the story comes in Acts chapter 4 at the end of that. So John and Peter go back to the house where all the believers are gathered. And they can't believe, they can't believe the success that they're having. Thousands are getting saved. And the church is spreading like wildfire. And, and they, just, they just escaped the authorities and came back to preach the gospel more. And so there's this little worship service that happens in a house. And they start praising God for all the things that he's done. And they start asking, give us more boldness. Help us to share the good news. And then the story ends with this. And when they had prayed in the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So it was a hard task, but I found it. There's one place in the Bible, in one verse, where all three of these together. And what's it like? What's it like when the Spirit and the Word and the church are working in tandem? Are you reading this? The, the, the house is shaking. The foundations are shaking. This is a group of people that not only knows the Word and believes it, they're asking for boldness in proclaiming the Word. It's a beautiful picture of the early church. And what are they doing? They're together. They're worshiping. They're speaking the truth. They're boldly proclaiming that church plants would come out of this room. Our church is a direct descendant from this church. There is a new city because the foundations of that house were shaken. That's what happens when the spirit and the truth and the, and, and the church work together. These are the things you need in your life. So here's my, here's my challenge to you. I, I'm given the application now. This is the Christian life. These three things. Being in the word, walking in the spirit, and living your life in church. If you want a picture, we, we used this picture last week. Fire is a really destructive thing. And there's three elements that take fire. And you can almost look at the three enemies like what we need for a fire. The devil lights a spark. The flesh is the fuel. We're just carrying around dry sticks of wood and the devil's following us all day long just trying to, get, trying to get it to take, right? And then the world is just breathing air onto that fire, fanning it, flaming it. They work together until the end result is destruction. But there's another picture that fire gives us and it actually comes in that early Acts church. They're waiting. Jesus has just ascended into heaven and they're waiting for something. He said, wait for the spirit. And when the spirit comes down, it says he comes down like fire. And we see that the first day that he comes down, 3,000 people get saved and baptized. And so this is fire in, in a good way and in a beautiful way. The fire of God's spirit and the good news is spreading everywhere. And you could use the analogy here. The word is the spark. The word is the thing that is trying to get you to ignite. It's got heat. It can ignite. But it won't unless the Spirit does a work. So I had professors in college who read the Bible cover to cover many times. The Spirit never did anything. It was just spark, 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 but nothing. But the Spirit is that thing that, that, that enables the Word to, to come alive. People who have been Christians for a while, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? 
Sometimes you hear a verse and it's just ho-hum and it goes over your head. And sometimes it lights you on fire. This verse that Jeremy engraved in my podium at one point lit me on fire. And I read it and I said, yes, that's it. That's right. I've had other verses, verses I've read, even just to plant the church in the first place. I, I was in 1 Timothy 6, and I'd read that 10 times that month already. But then one time, the Spirit let it catch, and it started to burn, and it started to grow. And out came the church plant. Out came a church in Ankeny. God can do this. He, he can do it in your life. And then, of course, the church. We should be, best case scenario, we should be the ones blowing on that fire. If God's doing a work in one of you, I hope that when you come here, that that fire grows and grows. It's really hard to be the Lone Ranger Christian. In fact, it's, it's impossible. But when we all get together, all that heat, all that oxygen, it does something. It can, it can shake a church. It can change the world. So there's your, there's, your, there's your picture. There's your fire analogy. Here are your practicals. We need to commit to reading the Bible, very simply. We just need to commit to doing it. Uh, to, to show you what I, what I, how I think it looks, like I think oftentimes between what the Bible says and what everyone else says, your friends, the world, whatever, I think, I think what we often do is we say, um, oh, that's interesting, but I really need this. And all I'm challenging you today is, is swap those two. I think that's, that's what a Christian does. The Christian says, I need this. And this is interesting. I'll, I'll keep tuned into this. You can't be apart from the world. But if we treat this like it's absolutely true, like if, like if you're looking for something, you need something, and the first place you go is to the Bible, God will bless that. The second thing we need to do is we need to be with the Lord in prayer throughout the day. One of Satan's favorite lies is when you're tempted. Think back to that time. Think when, when you're weak, when you really are weak and you really want to sin. This is the lie that Satan tells you. It's just you and your flesh, buddy. It's just you two. You know you're not going to win this battle, so you may as well cave. That's all that's here. That's a lie. The Spirit of God is with you. If you're a believer, you've been sealed. That means you have the king's authority. You have his signature. He loves you. You don't have to uh, fold. You don't have to give in to that sin. How do, how, do we, how do we know that? How can we be made aware of that? By walking in the Spirit, by praying. And then here's the third practical. Give yourself to the church. And of course I would say that. I'm the I'm the pastor boy. That's, that's what, I love churches. I help plant one, right? I love God's church. But you might say, ah, oh, yeah, but that's your job too. Like you have, a, you have a vested interest in the church. It's not just me. Jesus Christ loves his church. You know what he's talk, how he talks about us? He says, those are my holy ones, my most holy ones. Those are the ones I've called out. Those are the ones that are, that are my body, that I use in the world. He calls us his bride. How, how much more affectionate does he have to get for us to realize he loves his church? Jesus loves his church. So don't go down the road of thinking about church like you do every other thing you consume. Ah, I like, I like church because I get this and that out of it, but it could be better, so I'm, I'm going to be detached here or whatever. No, no, no. It's more important than that. This is, the, this is the group of called out ones. We get together to fan the flames of whatever the Spirit is doing. That's what God wants us to do. That's how he changes people. He, you're not going to change alone. You need other people. There's somebody in here 
The thing that you struggle with, they're extremely gifted at. Find them. Ask them to be your accountability partner. Make them challenge you. There's somebody in here also who struggles with the exact same thing you struggle with. Find them. Find them. Seek them out. That's the reason we gather together. The cool thing about the allies that God has given us is they, they aren't just, I hope, I hope you don't walk away just thinking, okay, read my Bible, pray, and go to church. <laughs> Got it, Pastor. I hope you do think those things, but I hope you think more than that, right? They're not just like three independent practices that you need to do. They sort of feed into each other. Just like the more fuel brings more heat, which brings in more oxygen and the fire. This is why they say it's spreading like wildfire. The more the elements start to overlap each other, they just feed each other, right? Why should you read the word? Well, it'd be good for you. There's truth in there, right? But that's not, that's not the only reason. The word helps you when you walk with the Lord. It, it moves you to pray, good things and bad. You know what else it does? It helps me. If you're not reading the word, you're bailing out on me because I'm a, I'm a brother in Christ. What good are you? If you're not in the word, what good are you? You're just going to tell me what you think. That's interesting, but this is necessary, right? It's not just you should read the word, it'll be good for you. You're, you're reading it for us. You see how they overlap and they feed into each other. What does the spirit do? Walking in the spirit, it will illuminate this text for you. And it will make you a vital part of the church. And if you come to church, the church ought to send you back to the book and help you walk in the spirit. Do you see how they're, they're fanning each other? You could live this life. This is the life Christ is calling you to. By, by doing these simple things, this is how he will light a fire in you. This is how he will change you and make you better. Let's talk about why we fight, and we'll close here. So we looked at, this is the whole passage um, all on one screen. And if, you, if you're counting, if you're looking at references, the word comes up a couple times, the spirit comes up a couple times, the church may, may, may be a little more, two or three times, two to four times in, in all of this. But this passage isn't about the church or the word or the spirit. I'm sorry if you feel misled by me telling you that at the end of the sermon. It's not primarily about that. Those are elements. Those are elements that go into it, but it's not primarily about that. If you went back and counted the references to who it's, actually talking about, what the verse is actually about, to Jesus Christ, you'd know exactly what it means. You'd know exactly who it's talking about. Who are we sealed in? We are sealed in Christ. Who are we supposed to believe in? We're supposed to believe in Christ. The glory is whose? Christ's. We put our faith in him. He's the son of God. God's might is in who? It's in Christ. Who was raised? Who was seated by God? Christ. Christ whose name is above all others, Christ, whose power lasts throughout the ages. It's Christ's. Everything is under whose feet? I forget. Christ's. There we go. He is the head of all things. Who is it? Christ. He fills all things. So this is, this is how we need to end this series. I'm not just saying, read your Bible, pray, go to church. I'm saying all of those things exist to point you to your Savior and your king. They exist to glorify and magnify Christ in your life. They exist to, to knit you together with him, to compel you to him, to make you more like him. Do you see how that might work? How reading his word makes you love him 
and act like him. How the Spirit is compelling you to do the things that Christ would do. Christ wouldn't be greedy. Christ would be sacrificial. That's the Spirit's work in your life. And then this church, New City Church, this ought to be a group of little Christs, little imperfect Christs. We're we're trying, the Spirit's doing its work. We still are fighting with the flesh, like Paul says in Romans 7. But it all goes to one place. It's all headed in one direction. And that's Christ. That's the point of all of this. That's the point of the battle. That's why we fight. This isn't your fight. Satan didn't pick you as an enemy. You're a bystander. The the, the fight is between him and Christ. And if you know Jesus, if you know what he's done for you, then you love Jesus. And that's why you fight. You fight not only because you're tired of sinning and you're tired of failing, but because you love the Savior. And you hate the enemy that attacks him. That's the only motivation that works. So if you go back home and say, all right, I just need to hack it. I just need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. No, you need to follow Jesus. And these three things are the things he's given you to help you. I'll close with this. We've, we've, we've done every, every sermon of this series. It's been fun to do. I share a war story, share a story from a battle, usually at the beginning. But I want to end with, with the final war story here. Uh, there was a man who was being executed for treason. And the charges were not true, but that doesn't matter to our telling of the story. This man had come to wage war against his enemies, so that much was true. But his tactic was different than any, any, that anyone else had ever taken. Instead of killing, in waging this war, instead of killing, this man decided that he would be killed. So instead of inflicting suffering, unlike every other battle in the history of humankind, he took on suffering, and he laid down his life, and he died on the cross. And it seemed to the enemy that the battle was won. They'd killed the king, he was dead and in the ground, and all of his followers didn't have an ounce of bravery. They all scattered and fled. And what he found out three days later, when the king rose again, is that his enemy had actually conquered him that Jesus had conquered Satan and that his resurrection was the down payment, the first glimpse of the victory that we all get to have if we follow him in battle. Jesus' death on the cross sets us free, it forgives us of sins, and it engages us in this battle that we fight, not because it's against us or because we're in charge, but because the king of the world who died for us beckons us to fight for him. And the weapons he gives us are unlike any other weapons in all the world. There's no guns, there's no knives or swords. He gives us a true word. He gives us a spirit that is faithful to seal us that we can walk in. And he gives us a church to love us and to do life with us. Will you fight for that king? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the time in your word. Thank you for the challenge of thinking about spiritual warfare. The first thing I think of when I think about it is how often I fail, how, how often I'm deceived and the enemy gets the better of me. But God, I know from your word and the spirit that resides in me, Lord, I know that ultimately victory is yours. You have guaranteed it. That what seemed like the biggest loss in all of, all of human history, your death on the cross, was actually the very thing you needed to do to secure our victory. So God, I thank you that you have called us out. That you have called us to not be 
uh, dwelling in darkness and, and, and listening to our flesh and just going along with the world, you've called us to be your most holy people. Help us to do that. Lord, if there's somebody here who's never answered that call, has never, never believed and followed you as their king, Lord, I pray they would do that today, that they would join the fight because, Lord, you, you command us to do it, but I also know just from having known you for years, it's a fight worth fighting. And you bless the effort when we do it together in community. Thank you, God, for the good things you've given us. Thank you for Jesus who leads us in battle and secures our victory. In his name we pray. Amen.